Good morning. Take your Bibles. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 6 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Continue through our series uh, today. Next week we'll be looking at 2 Samuel 7. I think you'll be able to see how that works well with this time of year as we celebrate Easter and what God has done for us. I hope you'll see those connections as we see God's grace even in the life of David and the people of Israel. Have you ever seen one of those signs on a box or a truck that says, Handle with care. In college, I worked for a few different pool companies over several summers, and one of the chemicals that we regularly used in pools, I'm not sure that they're even used today anymore, uh, had a similar label. It was muriatic acid, and if you've ever handled that, you believe that label. If you've experienced at all what it is, the effects that that chemical might have. All you have to do is get a little whiff and you start to give it a little bit more respect. You truly are to handle it with care. God sometimes gives us warnings like that in his word. He tells us, handle with care. He makes clear to us that he is not like any other God. He is holy. He's unique. He's different. He's not common. He must not be approached casually or according to our own design. The warning is not meant to keep us away, but to instruct us how he intends to draw near to us and how he wants us to approach him in response. And yet, how often do we fail to heed that warning? Now, our text this morning is a challenge for us. It's something that tests us. Maybe more than other passages that we look at. Maybe more than any other passage we've looked at in 2 Samuel. It's a wonderful and sobering reminder of the joy that God intends for us to experience in his presence. But worship comes with a warning label. What we'll see in our text this morning is that God's king leads God's people into his fearful but joyful presence. Both are here in this text. Let's begin our reading in chapter 6 and verse 1. The ark of the Lord, I'm sorry, I'm in uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 6. This is the word of our God. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Let's ask for God's help as we look at this passage together this morning. 
Father in heaven, we come before you recognizing our need to hear carefully from you in your word this morning. Lord, so often we come to the word and we want it to affirm what we already think. What we believe we know to be true about you. And yet so often your word brings us up short. It challenges us. It convicts us. It causes us to think and evaluate our own conclusions. Help us to do that this morning with humility. Help us to believe that you are always right. And we want to understand how that is true. Even in times of difficulty and challenge. Even when we see your judgment. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. In 2 Samuel we learned that God had now fulfilled his word to David. David had been waiting 2 Samuel 1 through 4 is all about David's patient waiting on God to fulfill that promise to make him king over God's people. And we read in chapter 5 verse 12, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted David's kingdom for the sake of God's people Israel. David was committed to serving the true king of Israel. As a servant to God's people. He was to be the agent of Yahweh's rule over Israel. He was not to be like the kings of other nations. Serving for his own honor. His own glory. To exalt his own power. He was to know and obey God's laws. Now what's the first thing that David then wants to do. After God has established him as king. After he has captured Jerusalem. Made this the new capital city of the nation what does he want to do he has this incredibly good desire he wants to bring the symbol of God's presence back to the center of the kingdom where it belongs why is this so significant well the ark represented God's presence with his people we'll consider how in just a moment but Just as we begin, this act was extremely wise. This was extremely God-centered and important. By bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, David is acknowledging before God's people to God himself that God, Yahweh, was their king. Again, Israel wasn't to have a king like the other nations. He was to be a king under the king of heaven. This morning, we'll consider the passage as it relates to the ark. The ark is the focus of this passage. It's mentioned 15 times in these 23 verses. It's the central feature that David and Israel must restore in order to experience the blessing of God's presence and fellowship with them. Same is true for us today. Worship is to be central to all that we do as God's people. So often we get focused on so many other things. Worship is to be central for God's people. So first, we see God's presence returning. In the ark, we see God's presence. Verse 1 demonstrates that this is a supremely significant event in David's rule. The narrator records it as essentially the first significant act as the king for all the people. The gathering here is massive. 30,000 people is recorded here in 2 Samuel 6. But the parallel passages in 1 Chronicles 13 and 15 record that David has assembled all Israel from the southernmost parts of the kingdom to the northernmost. 
God's glory and presence is returning at last. This has been missing to the detriment of God's people. Where has it been? Where has the ark been? Well, if you can remember our study all the way back in 1 Samuel, we last saw a focus on the ark in 1 Samuel 7. Now, earlier in 1 Samuel, Eli's wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, as the priests, they thought that by taking the ark into battle with them, almost like a lucky's rabbit's foot, that would guarantee them victory against the Philistines. But remember, that was a very dark day for Israel. Many Israelites were killed, thousands upon thousands. The ark itself was captured. News comes back. Eli dies. Eli the priest, the high priest, dies at the news. And in grief, the wife of Phinehas delivered their child. And remember, she names him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. It's a horrific day in Israel's history, all tied to the presence of God. The fact that God allows it to be captured by pagans is his judgment. His glory is departing. Now the Philistines, they experience the devastating power of God. They put it in the temple of Dagon. That that idol falls on its face. Its head falls off. They quickly return it as it causes these tumors among them. And at the end of chapter 6, a group of Israelites receive it back and they foolishly disregard God's commands not to trivialize this symbol of God's presence. They open the box and 70 people are struck dead in that moment. They quickly put that away and they turn it over to the house of Abinadab in chapter 7. And then the ark essentially goes missing from the story. Its absence is telling us something about Saul. Saul is spiritually blind. He never seeks to restore the ark to its rightful place. And now, as we enter this passage, it's been 60 to 70 years since it's been where it belongs at the center of Israel's worship. This is a big day for David and for Israel. It's a day of great joy. This great symbol of God with them, of God as the covenant king of Israel, is now being restored among God's people. It's a long-awaited day. It begins right now in verse 5, 1 through 5, with this high note. There's celebration. But let's look what happens. Go back and let's read verse 6 now. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand. To the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can The ark of the Lord come to me. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. 
Now, this is completely unexpected in the story. This is the moment of highest tension. What is God doing? This is supposed to be a great day. Worship is supposed to be centered on him. Isn't God's people trying to restore that? Why would God act in such a way? For first-time readers, we would not have seen this coming. What a magnificent occasion, and it's spoiled. Israel's having a parade, a grand celebration of the return of God's presence in their midst, and it's ruined by this death, this sudden death. All this noise and celebration, and in a moment, it's silenced. Why would God act in this way? Was what Uzzah did so bad that God would immediately take his life? In order to answer that question, we have to understand what we're dealing with here. What was the ark? It certainly wasn't God himself there. It's a representation, a symbol. Some have even called it a sacrament. It's displaying the character of God. It's revealing what he's like. The ark was a rectangular box that measured four feet long about two and a half feet wide and two and a half feet tall. It was made of a specific kind of wood and covered with gold. When God gave Moses instructions for the tabernacle, the place where he would meet with his people, the Ark of the Covenant is the first item to be described. It's sacred. The ark was placed behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies in which the high priest could enter only once a year on the Day of Atonement. It was a unique item. At either end of the ark, a cherub was crafted between them on the top of the ark, which was the focal point of God's dwelling among his people. And how could a holy God dwell with his people? There at the top of the ark, it was known as the mercy seat. The place where the blood of the lamb on the day of atonement was sprinkled as an appeasement for the sins of God's people. The ark represented God's covenant promises to be their God. It was the ark of the covenant. Who initiated that covenant? It was God. In scripture, the ark is referred to as the footstool of his throne. It's as if God considers this part of his throne room. So first, it represents to his people his intentionally to graciously rule over them for their good. Second, it was the place where atonement for sin happened. It represented his intention to reconcile a sinful people to himself. And thirdly, inside it was kept the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words where God told his people how they were to live before him. So that represented God's revelation of himself to man. Now the ark, therefore, was in no way intended to keep his people away. That wasn't why God designed it. But instead was to be the only means available for a sinful people to approach a holy God. You must understand at the foundation what this ark was. It is God in grace reaching out to sinful man saying, I want to dwell with you, but there are obstacles to overcome, which no man can overcome, but I will overcome them for you. 
The ark was God's provision of grace to his people. It represented his commitment to do them good. It points directly at the final sacrifice, Jesus Christ, God's final ruler. He'll be the final king who will rule over his people in righteousness and grace. The ark points at Jesus, the final revelation of God, who is word made flesh, who came to fulfill the law. His perfect, her, his perfect character and obedience reveals to us what God is like. He reveals the Father. And finally, the ark points at Christ as the only one who can truly reconcile God and man. Only he could accomplish all that the ark is symbolizing as the mercy seat, as God's rule, as God's revelation. Now, because of the significance then, theologically, all that the ark is saying, do you begin to see why the ark was special? Not because it was a human box that wasn't meant to get dirty. It's a box representing God with us. So here, God's clear instructions in number for his people as to how they're to treat his presence represented in the ark among them. Numbers 4 verse 4 says, This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting the tabernacle among the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So there's one covering listed already. Verse 6. Then they shall put on it a covering, a second covering of goatskin, and spread on top of that a cloth, all of blue, and shall put in it its poles. There are four rings fastened on the edges of the box, of the ark. And the Levites were to put the poles in there so no human would touch that symbol of God. After the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. And we ask why. Moses goes on and explains, the Lord destroyed from among the Levites, or rather the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, let not the tribes of the clans of Kohath be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. God's not making up these rules to be hard or grumpy or to just be fastidious. He's trying to protect them. He's trying to help them understand who it is they're dealing with. The seriousness of their sin before his holiness. Through the ark, God is seeking to teach his people he's not like any other God. He's holy. He's different. He's supreme. So the ark represents two very foundational theological truths that God wants his people to understand clearly. First, we are sinful. We cannot approach him. We cannot get near him. Or we will automatically die. 
because God is so holy to approach him is both a very awesome and potentially dangerous matter. Moses is told by God, no man can see me and live. But secondly, the ark demonstrates the other truth of the gospel. That even though we can't come near to God, he pursues sinners and makes this relationship possible. So now, with that foundation in mind, how should we think about the surprising events that happened to us here? We need to understand that God is not finally impressed by good intentions or sincerity. We don't know Uzzah's heart, but it certainly seems like this is a natural response. We don't want to see the ark falling into the dirt, do we? I'm not sure we're told explicitly here that it was about to fall into the ark. It just said that the oxen stumbled. So I'm sure the the ark is bouncing around on the cart. God's not looking for good intentions or sincerity from us. That's not sufficient. He's not just some kindly grandfather in the sky somewhere whose job is to be nice to humankind and just say, oh, it'll be all right. That's not really God. But neither is he like the petulant Greek gods who lose their temper to the destruction of those that are weaker than they. We see God's wrath here. And yet it is always, always just. It is not like human anger. It never comes from uncontrolled emotion, but from a settled disposition to always do right, to always defend and honor his glory. Even in his wrath in this text, God is seeking the good of his people by revealing more of his glory, more of his nature, his defense of his holiness to them. This is just like getting a whiff of that acid I was talking about at the beginning. It, it halts everything for Israel. They're doing the wrong thing. Numbers said no touch, no looking, and no cart. They're disobeying across the board. How could he have touched it unless it was uncovered? They were all looking at it. God is getting their attention. And one will die so that they all don't die. Does that sound familiar to you in any way? They could not go forward with their original plan. It functioned as smelling salts in the nostrils of a people who'd forgotten what it means to come into God's presence. They treated God with unthoughtful contempt by ignoring his clear word and warning. Caution handle with care. Often our undisciplined, untethered sympathies are shaped more often when we come to passages like this by our perceptions and experiences than we're aware of. Consider that this passage is included here as God's gracious warning to us this morning. Where might we be unthoughtfully holding him in contempt? Where might we be dragging him down in our own minds? Where might we be accommodating sin and disobedience and saying, it's okay, God is merciful, he's forgiving, I can get away with this. I'll apologize or confess later. This passage says, do not think that. You must not. Seeing God in his wrath is his kindness to us. 
Now here's a vital and foundational principle we must hold by conviction as we read difficult passage in God's word like this. The fact that God intends for us to read this about him, even potentially to struggle, perhaps even to misperceive his actions and character. He knows that God's people will struggle with understanding, God, are you being too hard? He's okay to risk that. Because he's not asking us to approve of his actions. We're to grow to discipline our minds and hearts when we come to difficult passages to start with the revealed truth that God is always in the right. So when we come to a text like this, we don't say, God, you need to explain yourself to me because this doesn't seem right or fair. We say, God, you are right. I'm struggling to understand what's happening here. Help me to dig. Help me to pursue you in this text. I read this week the story of two men making their way to a reception on a soggy Washington, D.C. evening. The one had offered the other shelter of his umbrella on their way to the event. And as they sloshed along and talked, the one stated his opinion that General Grant's leadership capabilities had been wildly overstated. Naturally, he would have softened his words had he known it was General Grant himself who, with whom he was sharing the umbrella. He spoke foolishly because he did not know with whom he was interacting. Does that describe us? Do we enter into worship personally, corporately, not really understanding who we're meeting, whose presence we're entering? We grow accustomed to his long-suffering mercy as he patiently withholds discipline for a time. But at times, at times like this, he will reveal his settled opposition to our sinfulness. It will get our attention. And that's on purpose. And that doesn't make him unjust or unfair or unloving. The question is, will we listen? Will we turn from sin to worship and submit to him? We must be careful that we're not concluding that good intentions in a passage like this justify blatant disobedience to his word. Is his word not clear? Does his word not say very clearly how Israel is to carry this cart? Isn't that what Saul was guilty of several times over? Isn't that how he justified his blatant rebellion against God? And Samuel says to him, to obey is better than sacrifice, than worship. To obey is better than the ark hitting the dirt. It should have caught our attention if we're reading carefully that something is wrong when we see that the ark is on a cart. Who's the only people in the story of Samuel that did that? The Philistines, pagans, unbelievers. For David and Israel to do this was dangerous and disobedience. They're following the plans of pagans rather than heeding God's word. And Uzzah's death, unfortunately, is a consequence and a theological wake-up call. In this text, can you see in a way that God is actually suffering long with them? They're disobeying his word in several ways, and yet God only judges the one. R.C. Sproul commented, Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. He's thinking in temporal thoughts. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would truly desecrate the ark. It was the touch 
of sinful man. The earth is an obedient creature. It, tell, it does what God tells it to do. The ground doesn't commit cosmic treason against its maker. There's nothing polluted about the ground. He continues, when God's justice falls, sometimes we're offended because we tend to think that God owes us perpetual mercy. Don't be surprised when God deals with our disobedience. Don't expect that because he's often patient that he always will be. And think of it, by seeking to put the ark back up, there's this subtle picture that's being painted, perhaps an unintentional theological statement, but it's being made nonetheless that sometimes God needs our help and our protection. And God says that statement will not be made. It cannot be made. It is false. God insists in this act that sinful man cannot help himself to God. Are you obeying the word of God that you know? Doesn't this sober us like smelling salts? Wow, God, God is serious. God is serious about his presence with us. Where are you excusing in your life repeated acts of disobedience? Do you know that God says to do something to you for you as a parent, as a husband or a wife, and you're not doing it? as a member of a church family, and you refuse to do it. Where might you need to turn this morning? One author comments, the great lesson for all time is to beware of following our own devices in the worship of our God. When we have clear instructions in his word, how we are to worship him. We have to worship according to his word, not according to good human intention. Number three, God's presence now enjoyed. Let's look again at our text. We'll go and continue our reading in verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window. Notice she's not with the crowd celebrating. And saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. Verses 10 through 12, the ark is put into the house of Obed-Edom. It seems best to conclude that this man is a Levite who knows how to care for the ark. God blesses his home immensely for three months. Then he used these three months to remind David and God's people of his true intent to bless them with his presence. 
We were last told David's fearful. He, he's starting to understand. He's waking up. God is not to be trifled with. This is no small matter. I can't do this any way I please. And when David hears of God's blessing this home, he knows he must complete what he started for the good of God's people. Now we're to notice a change in his approach. And that's made clear in 1 Chronicles 15. Let me read you a few uh, verses there. Then David saw that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. Then he said to the Kohathites of the tribe of Levi, Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. And in verse 13, he acknowledges what had happened. First Chronicles 15, 13. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So now this incredibly significant event is taking on the tone of celebration it is supposed to have. In verse 12, we're told David is rejoicing. In verse 13, he makes sacrifices, committing himself to God's way. After just six steps into the journey. In verse 14, David dances before the Lord with all his might. In verse 15, the celebration continues as David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. In these verses, David and the people are exuberant in their praise of God. They're passionately now and sacrificially committing themselves to God as their king. And in verses 18 and 19, David blesses the people as their king, offering them gifts. I just want to take a side note for a minute and notice the uniqueness or the contrast of David's kingdom. He demonstrates the kind of king God wants them to have. Remember in uh, earlier in Samuel that Samuel had warned that a king like all the other nations would take and take and take from them. And Saul had done just that. But the true king, the king that God had chosen for them, was giving to them. That's important, isn't it? It shows something of how God wants to bless through leadership and authority. He was pointing them toward their true and ultimate king, God, Jehovah, who intended for their good. Do you see the contrast that's presented here? Worship apart from the direction of God's word is dangerous. It's lethally dangerous. But worship according to God's word brings great delight. It should bring great joy and rejoicing. Number four, we conclude our passage, God's presence now despised. Look down at the last four verses, beginning in verse 20. David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord 
who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in, I think it's better to say, my eyes. David's saying, I will become humbler still. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. We come to the end of the chapter and find a rather strange ending. It does parallel what's happening. There's rejoicing first at the coming of the ark and then judgment at a wrong response. And then again, a rejoicing at the coming of the ark, God's presence among his people. And then a wrong response and judgment. Michael is David's wife, but did you notice how she's referred to in the text? It happens three times. She's called Saul's daughter. In verse 16, the narrator, divine narrator, somehow knows what she's feeling in her heart and reveals that to us. She despises David. And in verse 20, she unleashes those feelings of spite through her words. Now, why is she so upset? What is causing her to respond this way? Some have made the point, I've heard this before, based on her words here, that David's removed some of his clothing in his passionate dancing and worship before the Lord. They're thinking he's dancing in some manner of undress that's inappropriate in her eyes. But I don't think that's what the text is leading us to. And it's not what the text has said, at least a certain degree. The narrator carefully includes the point in verse 14 that David is wearing a linen ephod. It seems like he has set aside his royal garments and put on priestly garments instead. He's humbly serving God's people through the sacrifices and gifts of food. And her conclusion is that's not how a king behaves. That's common. He doesn't dance and worship with God's people. He's to be above the people. That's not what power does. Do you see how she's thinking like her father, why she's identified as Saul's daughter. She seems to be embracing his mindset that's far more concerned about what people think of the king than what God thinks of him. She's more focused on pleasing men rather than God, and she's missing the point entirely, and that's where we draw principles for our worship as well. Now David makes his response clear. He says in verse 21, he begins and ends with this saying that he was worshiping before the Lord. He's concerned about God's presence, not what anybody else thinks. Now some have considered his response both unfeeling and harsh. Maybe that's true. He tells her that he's been made king now instead of her father's house. But again, I'm not sure that's the main idea that David's getting across. Because he says at least twice, I'm worshiping before God. He says this, we maybe should conclude that David is expressing his amazement at God's grace, his great kindness in choosing him to be king. He's the youngest in his family, the last to have been considered by Samuel. And he says, God chose me, even above your father and above his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. I will celebrate before the Lord. 
There's a translation choice here in verse 22 that highlights David's humility better in the New American Standard. It reads, I will be even more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken with them, I will be distinguished. You see, David does not view himself as a king needing to highlight his honor, his influence, his power. That's what's different about this king. He sees himself as God's servant and humility is fitting for God's servants. To David, humility is dignity. To him, there's nothing dishonorable about passionate worship. And this illustrates what God had said to Eli in 1 Samuel 2. Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So pastor and author William Blakey writes, There are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic. But can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? Does God's presence in worship ever move you? Is it true that you're rarely moved to passionate worship with God's people, but you're more than willing to emotionally invest and cheer and celebrate your favorite team or a promotion at work or finding a great deal at the store? Are those things more significant to you than your worship? Than coming before a holy God? Isn't the gracious offer of God's presence because you're robed in the righteousness of Christ a far greater reason to celebrate and express joy? What a challenge to us. This is a challenge to me to not take for granted this gathering. What we're actually doing. Don't look at it as common or temporal we're meeting with a holy god through the righteousness given to us by his final king this passage warns us against approaching god in his presence without trembling in humility at his word we must not we must not treat him as common or familiar we must come before him with reverence and awe He is a fearful, an awful, a God who fills us with awe of righteous fear and reverence before him. Imagining we can come before him without a spirit of humble repentance and contrition is dangerous, as the passage teaches. We can also despise God by failing to delight in him, by not coming with joy and exuberance and passion and commitment of all of our being. This doesn't mean we just do whatever we like. The picture of this celebration here is not a one-to-one equivalent for our worship service. If it is, then we need to start including animal sacrifices, right? But author Dale Ralph Davis concludes, we must not forget that God is holy and to be approached according to his word. And yet we must also not forget that God is gracious And should be delighted in with passionate worship. You can either be too casual or you can be too cold. Does your worship meet God's standards as presented in this text? Are you entering his presence either personally or corporately with unconfessed sin? Thinking it's it's not that big a deal. Are you treating God as if he's just another buddy? Are you passionate in your worship before him? Does he get all of you, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
It's okay for God's people to express delight in worship. With raised hands, with a tear in our eyes, don't you think that would be fitting with what David is expressing here? If our hearts and minds are focused on him, he's certainly worthy of such responses. And really the test isn't what everybody else thinks. Am I giving my heart fully to him? That's what David says. As we begin to remember what Christ accomplished through his death on the cross this week. Remember how the crowds were thrilled about the king entering the city of Jerusalem. We have almost a repeat of this event. Jesus enters Jerusalem to cheers of Hosanna. But were they worshiping God according to his word? They were certainly passionate that day. but They were misguided. They again wanted God to work for them their own way. According to their expectations in a human manner. Getting rid of the Romans. Just days later then, they demanded the death of that same man who didn't live up to their expectations. Isn't that the way we're tempted to respond at times to God? We think sometimes, God, this act of judgment on us is is too extreme. This isn't how I think you should act. But he doesn't leave that up to us to decide, does he? God, you are righteous in all your judgments. So we think of how God is at work in his greater son, David. We see that God's perfect king leads us safely, safely into his holy presence by enduring for us the father's holy wrath for God's own glory and our eternal joy. Jesus dies for sin so that others may receive the pardon of God. He takes all of God's wrath. We see it and we may feel like this is Wow, this is a strong reaction, but it's nothing compared to his wrath poured out on his son who was absolutely, completely innocent and obeyed every word of God his entire life. How can you be upset about Uzzah but not upset about Jesus? He would fulfill all that is symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant. He's our true king who brings us into God's presence by fulfilling all that's required for us to spend eternity with a holy God. Do you see how special it is to come into his fearful but joyful presence? May we worship him this morning. Let's pray. Our great God, we recognize that you are not like us. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Even in a passage that may cause us to stumble or question you, you're still working for our good. Lord, I pray that we would see your wisdom and kindness trying to teach us of the nature of our sin and your incredibly unmerited provision in your King. Father, we want to say rightly, Hosanna to the son of David. We want you to be the king that you desire to be for us. Help us to submit. We can't do that on our own. So often we want to do things our own way. It's dangerous for us. 
And yet you are desiring for us to delight in your presence. Both things are true in this text. Help us to obey and choose the delight you offer for us. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. May we receive the joy that you intend for us as we come to you through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.